1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be camping out a good bit here throughout, um, so it'll be helpful just to have it in front of you. We won't go into uh, every part of it, but it'll be helpful to, to reference back and forth. So tonight, just to give you kind of a, a game plan of, of where we're going, you can see on your handout there, um, don't forget the people who forgot their handouts, give them shame after this, but check your handouts, give a high five to the people who remembered. Um, you can see kind of where we're going. So tonight I want to give you a few reasons um, about why we're closing this series on a message about the, about the resurrection. So does the resurrection of Jesus even matter? Why are we closing the series of questioning Christianity with the resurrection? Well, that's not just by happenstance, but that's intentional. So we're going to talk a little bit through that. And then we're going to spend some time considering why the claim that Jesus rose bodily from the dead is actually a reasonable claim. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about what that word reasonable means, but I want you to keep that kind of at the forefront of your minds that the resurrection of Jesus is actually a very reasonable claim. And then we're going to close by thinking about um, the relevance and the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is one of the most beautiful doctrines in all of Scripture, and so look forward to reflecting on that. But let's start there with that first question. Does the resurrection of Jesus really matter? I hope you can find your place there in 1 Corinthians 15. Look down to verses 13 and 14 with me. Paul says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Well, the first reason that the resurrection of Jesus matters is because the whole Christian faith hinges on it. Without the resurrection, nothing that we do matters. Paul's essentially saying that to the Corinthian church that if Christ had not actually risen from the dead, then everything I've ever preached to you is vain. It's just like inutterable phrases that you might as well cast aside. As the Welsh minister, one of my favorite preachers ever, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, if it is not a fact that Christ literally rose from the grave, then you are still guilty before God. Your punishment has not been borne. Your sins have not been dealt with. You are yet in your sins. It matters that much. Without the resurrection, you have no standing at all. Even as we sang a little bit earlier, it's Christ's blood that pays the penalty that our sins deserve. Because the Bible teaches that all of us inherently are sinful. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And that sin, Paul later says in Romans 6, that the wage or simply what we earn for that sin is death. Every single one of us is born into that. It doesn't take much to look around in the world and see that we live in a world that's infested by sin. And what Paul is saying, what Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching, is that if Jesus just died and he stayed in the grave, well, then that sin actually hasn't been yet paid for. Because the whole work of Jesus Christ is not just in his perfect life. It's not just in his crucifixion on the cross that he died in our place, bearing the full cup of God's wrath against sin that was meant for us on himself. But it's also that this Jesus was buried that he lay in a grave for three days. And then after those three days, 
He was resurrected from the dead and then ascended to the Father, demonstrating that the full work of salvation was complete, that sin's greatest, Satan's greatest tool, the one, the one weapon that he thought could topple God's kingdom, death itself, that actually death itself has no hold on this Jesus. And so that's why this doctrine is so significant. If you remember from last week, we talked about how Jesus is God. He's not, when he became man on this earth, it's not like he set his divinity aside. No, but Jesus truly is God. And so if Jesus was not raised, well, then we have no reason to believe that he truly is God because only God can raise the dead. If we deny the resurrection, well, this dismisses the reliability of Old Testament prophecy and the apostolic testimony that we see in the book of Acts and in the rest of the epistles, even what we just read from 1 Corinthians. And so this connects to our talks when we talked about the trustworthiness of the Bible, when we talked about the storyline of the Bible. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then those things can't be trusted. Basically, what I'm saying is that if the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead didn't happen, then all of our teaching in this series, Questioning Christianity, just as Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, it's in vain. It doesn't matter how many kind of logical ideas we think we can have to answer some of these questions. If Christ was not raised, none of this matters. So as you listen this evening, I want you to consider the vast significance of the resurrection, not as part of the Christian beliefs, but as the belief on which their entire faith hinges. So whatever your reaction to that question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? I want, you to, convince, I want to convince you this evening that it's, again, reasonable to believe in Jesus's literal resurrection from the dead. In a sense, that's all of what apologetics is. I probably should have led with this sometime in some of the earlier sessions, but you may have noticed that as we've t- talked through these things, I haven't really just been like, creening myself to try to convince you of the validity of these questions. Part of that is because I know the majority of you in this room are already believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But part of that also is that no one has ever been empirically proved to salvation. Just as Parker shared in his own testimony, he could have a list all day and he could think that he was getting more, more green than he was getting red. But without the spirit regenerating his heart, making him new, he was still just a dead, rotting corpse. It's like very vivid imagery, but it's true. God had to sovereignly intervene. And so I, but I do think answering these questions and kind of just the nature of apologetics in general for the Christian faith is helpful because it at least demonstrates to people that Christianity is not just believed by hokey Christians or people who are unintellectual or disingenuous or maybe lazy or uh, maybe they're just naive or ignorant. No, Christianity is a very reasonable religion to believe in. And so I want to maybe put your mind at ease that instead of feeling overwhelmed and thinking that when hard questions about faith come up, that you have to have some sort of silver bullet that's going to convince people of what you're saying is true or what the Bible says is true. I simply want to put before you that our task is to just persuasively convince people that the Bible and believing what the Bible teaches is at the very least 
reasonable. So many people claim, again, that Christianity is maybe antiquated. But anyone who's at least intellectually honest, I think, must confess that Christianity is not just illogical or unreasonable. So I set that up, one, to put your mind at ease, but also to launch into this next section where we're going to talk about the reasonable nature of the resurrection. So I pray that as we talk through these nine facts, that they will equip you to share the hope of the resurrection with others. And if you're not a Christian or you really don't know where you stand, I hope that you listen closely and are convinced again of the reasonable nature. And then when we get to the beauty and the meditation of Christ's resurrection from the dead, oh goodness, I hope you see the beauty of Christ so that you are just compelled to follow him. So let's start there. Is the resurrection of Jesus reasonable? A hat tip is in order for Presbyterian minister Ray Heipel. He was very helpful in my research this week as I was looking through some of these uh, reasons, and so I've adapted some of, some of his work here with these nine reasons that we have. As I look at the handout, probably should have put numbers instead of letters, but hey, you can't win them all. So the first reason, or point A, the Old Testament prophesied hundreds of years before Christ that Israel's Messiah would be killed and then rise from the dead. Just one instance, Psalm 16:10, for you, God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One, that is Jesus, see corruption. Part of the reason that it's reasonable to believe that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead is because of Old Testament prophecy. You can see some of those other references there on your handout. This is just wonderful doctrines that this Bible, if you go back and listen to, or maybe you remember from our overview of the story of the Bible and of the trustworthiness of the Bible, goodness, we have this Old Testament here. All of these different books that were written over the course of hundreds of years by different authors and different places, and yet it's one beautiful, unified story of the gospel, of how all things are leading to the redemption that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these prophecies that were written thousands of years before Christ have come true because we see testimony to the Lord Jesus later on. Second reason, you can see there, Jesus' own prediction. So Jesus predicted his own betrayal and crucifixion so often that even his enemies knew that he claimed he would be resurrected after three days. Mark 14, 58, Jesus is before the Jewish council, and the Jewish council says of him, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Jesus was a historical figure, and this historical Jewish council heard what Jesus said at a specific point in history, and they knew of these testimonies that he described about himself. Third, Jesus' disciples were proclaiming his resurrection a mere 50 days later in the very city in which he was condemned. So his disciples, after Jesus is resurrected, and as they go and the church starts to grow, they're proclaiming the hope of the resurrection. They're proclaiming that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, and yet no one attempted to show the body or the bones of Jesus to refute that claim. It's a very interesting fact, but if all of these apostles were going around and spreading this news, news that the Romans would perceive as threats, you would think at the very least that someone could just say, okay, well, here's his body. Obviously, what they're saying is not true. Here's the bones of this Jesus that we crucified. You can't believe what these 
foolish apostles and disciples are saying. And yet there isn't one historical claim that shows that anyone even attempted to do this, nor could, because Jesus actually did rise from the grave. In Acts 2, 29 through 33, we see that the apostles say that, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. In his tomb, David's tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Fourth reason, the disciples lived the rest of their lives declaring Jesus' resurrection, and they were persecuted, they were tortured, and they were killed for that claim. Even though if they were to pull back from that and say, you know what, as soon as I'm facing death, as soon as I'm facing torture, yeah, no way, Jesus didn't actually I just made that up. That was a joke. No, they stood by their claims, and they were even willing to die behind this claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. Rodney Stark, a Baylor professor, sick and bears. Rodney Stark said, if the earliest followers of Jesus knew, knew without a doubt that he had not been raised, why would they die for a lie? Again, that's a reasonable claim for us to consider. Point number five, eyewitness testimonies. So Paul points to the hundreds of eyewitnesses who are still alive and could be checked out as proof that Jesus really did rise from the grave. So look down there in your Bibles with me uh, again in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 6. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. There were over 500 witnesses, many of whom, as Paul says, were still alive when he was writing this letter to the church of Corinth. You would think that the church, if they wanted to, could have asked these very witnesses to testify about the risen Jesus. Is what these apostles are saying, is what they're saying about Jesus true? Well, there were 500 eyewitness testimonies to the resurrection. He says, go find them. Go ask them. Go, go have them tell you about the beauty of what Christ's resurrected body looked like. Can you imagine this dazzling, beautiful, glorified, resurrected Christ? Six, the preservation of the church. So the church of Jesus Christ survived and prospered through an intense and prolonged period of persecution. In just one generation, the church had spread to every land, every race, every class, and every culture. Though it had no money, no power, no might, no influence, there was no organized system or institution that 
propped it up? By the year A.D. 250, Christianity had grown from a small group of disheartened disciples in Roman Palestine to a mass movement that was spread across the entire Roman Empire. There were other Jewish messianic groups that rose up during the time of Christ and after Christ's death and resurrection. And these Jewish messianic groups had leaders within their groups that claimed to be the Christ. But as soon as their leader was killed, every single one of those groups fizzled out. Why is it that one of those Jewish messianic groups, after their leader died, did not fizzle out, but actually spread through persecution, through just absolutely no help from others except God's Holy Spirit. The fact that we're here in the United States of America holding in our hands God's very word that testifies to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are all, I don't, maybe some of you in this room are ethnic Jews. I'm not. I presume most of us are what we would call Gentiles. That is people who are outside of God's chosen group. And that's because the gospel has gone forward to the very ends of the earth. We have, even in our midst, Samantha Burgess. She's here on furlough. Is that the correct term-ish? Stateside. She's over in Europe declaring the gospel. I mean, in what world does it make logical sense for someone like Samantha to literally wager her entire life on the good news of this gospel, of this risen Christ, unless it's true? Well, it is reasonable to believe that when someone is willing to wager their life for this, just as these apostles did, and just as the church has been preserved through the ages, it's because it truly happened. Seven, independent early reports. So the earliest surviving written reports of Jesus' resurrection are both largely uh, widespread and independent of each other. We have no less than 18 first century documents from within the New Testament that explicitly refer to Jesus' resurrection. 18. For many ancient events, we sometimes only have one or two. If you want to hear more about how some of those kind of documents were passed down, we talked about that in our question, um, can we really trust the Bible? Eighth and final reason for the reasonable uh, belief in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. This is one of my favorites. The testimony of the women at the tomb. How many of you have heard um, about the, this kind of evidence for the resurrection? Just by show of hands. Maybe about half of you. Yeah. So this is like a, a, a pretty common one, but I think it's a, it's a pretty compelling, compelling reason to believe that Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead. So in first century Rome, and really just first century across the world, pretty much every culture was very male-dominated. Men were in power over everything, and sometimes women, particularly in Roman culture, the Greco-Roman world, were often seen kind of as second-class citizens. They didn't have many rights at all. And yet, this Bible, this testimony, records that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels record that women were the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb or of the risen Jesus himself. If some sort of rogue Christian group was putting together the Bible as a means of trying to convince people that this is actually true and that Jesus actually rose from the dead, the last thing they would have wanted to do is to have women be the first eyewitness testimonies. 
because those testimonies wouldn't have held up. That was just how the culture was. But again, this is where we see the countercultural nature of the Bible. This testifies to the reality that what the Bible tells us about these testimonies from the women are actually true. Why else would it include it unless this actually happened? So you can see those references there from all of the eyewitness testimonies of the women at the tomb. I think that's just another compelling reason uh, to believe that Jesus actually was resurrected from the dead. But I want to turn now to consider that second, that second question there on your handout. Excuse me, the third one. Is the resurrection of Jesus still relevant? So for those of you who may not consider yourselves Christians, or if you are Christians, would encourage you to also tune in, I want you to hear me out for a moment. The implication of Jesus' resurrection, they don't just matter for factual or historical purposes. I appreciate you hanging with me as we work through some of those. I know we work through them quickly. But the primary implications of Jesus' resurrection aren't just factual or historical. They're intensely spiritual and intensely theological. There is a day coming when this risen Christ that, again, we at least believe it's reasonable to believe that this Jesus that the Bible testifies to is risen from the dead. And there, com- there is coming a day when this risen Christ will come to judge the living and the dead, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. It is an indisputable fact that all people have a number to their days. We don't like to think about death. Our culture is very kind of, uh, we're just averted to the idea of death. We turn funerals into celebrations of life because we don't like to think about death. But death is an inevitable feature of all of life. Kane Tanaka, I read about her on Wikipedia today. She's a Japanese woman. She's the oldest verified living person to this day. She was born, any guesses in what year she was born? 1922. Closer, 1903. Can you believe that? Somebody born in 1903 is still kicking. For any of you math people out there, that's 118 years old. Apparently, she still does art and walks around. She was supposed to carry the torch at the Japan Olympics for the opening ceremonies, but with all the COVID stuff, that didn't happen. But this lady, she too will pass. And what happens when someone dies? Their body is buried. It's placed beneath the earth where it just simply decays. It's not a pleasant picture. From dust we came, and to dust we shall return. But here's where the Bible, again, is utterly unique and would call you to believe in Jesus. That Jesus Christ, the Savior that the Bible testifies to, has risen bodily from the grave, means that one day God will raise up our bodies from the ground as well. Paul says that Christ's resurrection is a first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I think this is a common misconception of what the Bible teaches. 
that our bodies are just these decaying organisms that house our souls and that when they're buried, they're going to simply decay away and our soul will go to be with Jesus. But the doctrine of resurrected bodies, that Jesus was physically, bodily resurrected from the dead is no accident. It's a, it's a complex and nuanced doctrine. It's more than we can get into tonight. But I want you to know that if you are in Christ, your physical body, that body that is buried beneath the ground, well, on the last day when Christ returns, he will come to raise that body. And we will be caught up in the clouds with the Lord Jesus as the Bibles teach. This isn't some just kind of uh, crazy or kind of weird doctrine, but it speaks to even the beauty of creation in the garden. If you remember back to our talk on the storyline of the Bible, God created all things by the word of his power. By the word of his mouth, he spoke and the world came into existence. He spoke and out of the dust, he formed man and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We are God's handiwork. As you probably have heard of before, we bear God's very image. And yet what happened in sin is that it distorted all of these things. It brought death into the world so that no longer would we have these perfect bodies that God had created and that he could look at and say, oh, this is very good. Instead, we have bodies that decay, bodies that are given over to cancer, bodies that slowly waste away over the course of time. But God, in his kindness, because of Christ's work, because Christ both lived, died, and was resurrected from the dead, we can be confident that we too, if we're united to him in faith, will also be raised on that last day. And we will inhabit these beautiful, glorified bodies and be with the Lord as he originally intended. That knee that hurts when you go running, it will hurt no more. Those family members that you've lost to sickness, there will be no sickness. We can trust that just as Paul teaches in 1 Thessalonians and in 1 Corinthians 15, that we will be raised from the grave on that last day. But again, this is, this is where the rub is. If you are not united to God by faith in Jesus Christ, your body will not be raised. Your body will remain in the ground to rot and decay. The Bible teaches that your soul will perish in hell forever. We don't like to talk about hell, but the Bible is clear that if God is to be just, if God is to maintain the reputation of his holy character, then he can't tolerate sin. He must punish that sin. There must be someone or something to atone for that sin, to pull God's wrath back. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And there is only one way that we can be cleared of our guilt. We must stand 
in Christ's righteousness. That is to say, we must have faith that Jesus' life, his sinless life, his death in our place, and his resurrection from the dead are sufficient to save us. We must be able to profess the same type of testimony that Parker gave this evening. Obviously, the details are going to be different because we have different lives, but what's key is that Parker was dead, that he heard the gospel, he heard the hope of what Christ has done, and then through that gospel, the Lord brought about faith in his heart to believe, and the Spirit regenerated him, that is, made him new, called him to himself. If we attempt to stand in our own work, the Bible clearly teaches that our own work will simply bring about death. Just as we mentioned, the wages of sin is death. But the work of Christ brings about life. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So stand in his work. Don't stand in your own work. Death came into the world by a man, but another man, the risen Christ, has affected the resurrection from the dead, if we believe in him. We are to examine ourselves to see whether you are in the faith, to test ourselves that Jesus Christ is in you. Don't assume that just because you like Jesus or because you hang around Christians that you are truly in the faith. You must examine yourself. Are your desires being increasingly conformed to the will of God as revealed in his word? Are your hopes being rooted more deeply in the promises of scripture than in the circumstances of your life? Are you increasingly disgusted by the sin you see on social media, TV, and speech, and conversation, and in your own life? Are you increasingly marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? I ask these questions not to cast doubt on any true believers, but to cause you to reckon with the serious teaching of the Bible. If you are in Christ, you can have confidence that even as we sing in that hymn, he will hold me fast, that Christ will not lose you once he has you. But if you can't answer affirmatively to those questions, you should pause and do a little bit more spiritual inventory to ensure that you have placed complete faith in Christ's work and not your own. And if you don't feel like you have, or if you feel that weight, even that weight that Parker talked about, that weight pressing on you, please talk to me or someone that you came with. But now, for the Christian, why does the resurrection matter? Well, to begin with, Peter says that Christ's resurrection is the very basis and means by which we are born again. In 1 Peter 1, 3, he says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Generally speaking, the fact that Christ is risen means that death has been defeated. That Jesus Christ, as Revelation 1.18 says, is the first and the last, the living one, the one who died and who is now alive forevermore, the one who has the keys of death and Hades. And because of this, we can be confident that Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 25 is sure, that God will swallow up death forever, and he will wipe away tears from all faces. He will take away the reproach that is the sin from his people. This should give us incredible hope. In Romans 6, Paul also connects the resurrection with our sanctification. I would encourage you sometime this week, just as a practical application, read through Romans 6. 
particularly pay attention to verses 1 through 14. Paul says that we, are we, what are, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see that connection there? The Bible is helping us to see that the resurrection, again, it's an intensely practical doctrine. Paul is saying that because, uh, Paul is saying that because we have been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life with him, that our life before Christ saved us should be markedly different from life after Christ has saved us. Because Christ has resurrected from the dead, he has sent his spirit to us to indwell us, to teach us the commands of God, to give us a conscience so that we know when we're doing wrong. And so ultimately that we have the power and the ability to follow him. The gospel is not just that Jesus, the son of God, came to the world to die for your sins. The gospel is that Jesus, the son of God, came to the world to die for your sins and then to be resurrected in power before ascending to the Father. The resurrection is intensely practical as we look to God to sanctify us. It gives us hope when we're tempted to despair because of our sin. We all know what it's like to feel like sin has the upper hand on us. We just habitually keep returning to the same sin over and over and over again. But because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, we can be sure that sin no longer has power over us. That doesn't mean that we will never sin again, but it does mean that ultimately that power no longer is held over us. As Paul later says in Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. If you've been raised, seek the things that are above. We are only able to seek the things that are above because the Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the grave and has sent his Holy Spirit to enable us to walk in new life. Goodness, there's so much more we could say. As you've probably heard me reference throughout, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a big fan of the resurrection. As you read through his letters, I would encourage you, pay close attention to how Paul uses the resurrection as the hinge, the compelling witness, the compelling power of the gospel, because really so much of the Christian life is wrapped up in it. As we close, I want to challenge you with one thing. One of the most marvelous passages which we've dipped in and out of on the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead in general is 1 Corinthians 15. I want to challenge each of you in this room to find one or two or three people or however many people in a group and to read and discuss 1 Corinthians 15 together. Spend time reading through it. Ask questions of the text. Ask questions of one another questions of meaning, ask questions of application, ask questions of clarification, whatever it may be, trust that if we spend time in this word, if we spend time reflecting on 1 Corinthians 15, we can just see the wonderful beauty of the resurrection of Christ. So after this, you can send a text message or talk to someone in person. If you have an owl like Hedwig or something that you can send a message to your friend with, Tough crowd. No Harry Potter fans. 
The point is, find someone and read 1 Corinthians 15 with them. Let me pray for us and then we'll close up.